1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Pagonis, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, I'm speaking with Pierre Min about his new book, Where They Need Me, Local Clinicians and the Workings of Global Health in Haiti, published by Cornell University Press in 2022. Pierre Min is an associate professor in the Departments of Anthropology and Social and Preventive Medicine at L'Université de Montreal. His research interests include the moral dimensions of medical practice, Transnational Humanitarian Aid, and Global Health Education and Practice. And Pierre, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Well, I'm so glad you're here. This is just a fascinating topic and such an interesting book. And to begin, would you tell us a bit about your own background? And I'm particularly interested in why did you decide to conduct your research in Haiti?
0: Sure. I um, ended up uh, going to Haiti for the first time, kind of um, almost by accident, I say. I um, was working for two professors, Georges Fouron and Nina Glick Schiller, who were writing a book on the Haitian diaspora in New York. And I grew up on the west coast of the United States, and there wasn't a large Haitian. Community There, unlike in Montreal, where I am now, which has one of the world's biggest uh, Haitian communities outside of Haiti. But while working for um, Nina and George, um, I became interested in this Caribbean country. And again, I didn't know anything about it. Um, but working with them, I uh, started learning about Haiti's history and uh, its uh, political situation. And at the same time, I was taking courses in medical anthropology. And when uh, I was looking for a place to do a summer research project, I asked them, uh, could I go to Haiti? And they said, yes. In fact, we know a Haitian-American medical anthropologist, Rosemary Kierichi, and she uh, facilitates trips for undergraduates to a small village on Haiti's north coast uh, called Le Borgne in French, or Oboi in Creole. And so um, that's how I first arrived in Haiti, um, in this little village of about 2,000 people, a beautiful, beautiful area of the country, um, kind of mountainous peninsulas and the ocean, uh, but also a community with very limited infrastructure and a pretty serious health problems for most people in its population
1: that's interesting because in the book you go a bit into why different volunteers and um charitable organizations go to haiti and so um and and a lot of them don't have a connection to it either so it's really interesting to hear about you and how you didn't have a connection um, and yet you ended up there
0: Yes, and when I arrived, um, Rosemary was with me for the first week, and when we were talking about what I would do, um, you know, I'm an undergraduate student, my idea of um, how to be in countries like Haiti or Nicaragua or Honduras um, has been informed mostly by images of humanitarian aid, right? So things that I saw from volunteer groups or churches or things on TV growing up, Save the Children, uh, you know, kind of NGOs with uh, a a lot of visibility. And I remember asking Rosemary, like, how can I help uh, when I'm here? You know, should I do something around a construction project or, uh, um, you know, some kind of volunteering through the churches. And um, she looked at me and said, well, you know, you don't know anything about this place. Uh, Your job now is to learn about it and um, said, learn Creole, um, learn about life in a fishing town, um, visit people's farms, go to the markets. And eventually, if you want to do something, sure. But she was also saying to me, um, you know, very nicely, like, it's very arrogant of you to think that you're going to be able to help people when you don't know about their situation. And this was a way um, I I still feel very lucky today to have had uh, my first experiences in Haiti as someone um, who was really there to try to learn about Haitian society and culture. um, Because I think a lot of foreigners' experiences when they travel to Haiti um, has them intervening right away has them uh, doing giving distributing um, making decisions um, you know helping in quotes and that sets up relationships of um, pretty imbalanced relationships over the long term and it it experiences how people come to see that country and its society
1: it's kind of the parachute thing isn't it sort of you know parachuting in with a not that they're literally parachuting in but
0: yeah, absolutely, and it's coming in with a big emphasis on material aid on things. People will bring down clothing or um, toys, books, medicine, and and there's definitely you know material needs in Haiti, but it those needs exist in in a larger, more complicated system. Um, and a lot of times, what people are bringing isn't quite adapted. Um, I remember that first summer in in Haiti, I started becoming conscious of how. Uh, things that people would bring in would just create different divisions or jealousies or alliances or, you know, and some things would make people really happy and be very useful. But I had, you know, dutifully brought a suitcase of things to give away. And after, after the end of my time there, my summer there, I was like, I I can't, I don't know how to give these away. This doesn't make sense. So I actually set up some, um, a little stall in the public market. And I said, I'll trade these things, you know, for anything made in Haiti. And it was, you know, I had brought down things like pliers and scissors and, you know, French-English dictionary and playing cards and you know, kind of little things, trinkets. Um, And then people would come and exchange, like kids would bring me their toys, like spinning tops that they had made. Um, uh, Women would bring cooking spoons that had been carved from local wood. So I actually came back with all of these little objects that had been made in Haiti. But by turning what had essentially, you know, my idea of gifts uh, into things that could be traded, um, I managed to avoid like some of the (laughs) conflicts or jealousies that would have come from just a, distribution.
1: Yeah, what a great idea. And did you learn Creole?
0: I did. I did. So that community had very few French speakers. Um, and French is my first language. Haitian Creole is uh, based mostly on French vocabulary with a very different grammar structure, different syntax, but um, the advantage for me as a French speaker was that there were a lot of words that I already knew, and because my family is from Quebec, and a lot of the colonists who settled uh, Saint-Domingue, which became Haiti, left from the same regions during the same periods that folks came to what was then New France, and eventually uh, Canada and Quebec, so there's a lot of vocabulary and pronunciations that we have here uh, that also Uh, exist in Haiti. So that was an advantage for me in in learning the language, um, plus living with Haitian people and speaking it every day.
1: Yeah, that must have been a a great advantage. Um, So I'd like to start with just the phenomenon of medical aid in Haiti. And in the book, you note that there are an estimated 3,000 to 10,000 unregistered NGOs. So those are the ones that are not registered, which I think is the vast majority are not registered. Um, So 3,000 to 10,000 unregistered NGOs in Haiti, and you say a significant percent of them are involved in some way in health. So I wonder, could you maybe give us a broad overview of the medical NGOs? For instance, where do they come from? Why are they coming? And is there room for so many of them?
0: Yes, so that number is the number that would, was circulating, especially after the earthquake, and I sort of mention it to show that we really don't know. You know, three to three thousand to ten thousand—it's such a huge range—and um, there is a ministry of planification and external cooperation or international um, cooperation um, as part of the Haitian government, but. Um, Not all of the groups, uh, a minority of the groups probably are registered uh, with them, and so they have their official list, but in reality, uh, the number is much higher. So these groups, they really vary a lot, and one of the things... that I I write about, is that medical aid in Haiti uh, is both non-governmental and governmental. So you have the governments of foreign countries that will have health uh, projects in Haiti that are funded um, by... Other governments, and are implemented through their offices of international development or foreign aid, etc. And these come from the U.S., they come from Canada, they come from Cuba, um, from European countries. Uh, so you have that governmental aid, and in terms of non-governmental uh, aid, again, this can be a wide range of different organizations. Some of them, like World Vision or uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, these are big multinational organizations. They work around the world. They have huge budgets. Sometimes their budgets will be bigger than the budget of the government um, in the country where they're intervening. Um, And then you have very small organizations, like maybe sometimes just a a dozen people who have gotten together, who have formed a group, and then with some volunteers uh, will take trips to Haiti to do different forms of medical work. Uh, And the variety of interventions is huge. Again, you have uh, programs that will reach uh, hundreds of thousands and even sometimes millions of people, large foreign aid programs in Haiti that can be doing anything from vaccines to uh, um, uh, popular education, uh, supporting the Haitian government. In different activities that they might have and then you might have a group that's uh, let's say a dentist uh, based in Chicago who uh, once a year will go down and do a week work a week's um, work uh, of, of dental care. Um, for folks in a rural area. Uh, he may partner with a Haitian dentist or not. Um, and they may be working in a school, they may be working in a small clinic. Um, and uh, again, they might just be pulling teeth for a week, uh, or doing a, a bit of prevention, or a, uh, but mostly acute care. So it varies enormously uh, in scope uh, and in target activity.
1: So it sounds like there may be a lot of stepping on each other's toes, perhaps. And Just as a follow-up then to that, um, in chapter one, you deal with the problem of coordination or or lack of coordination between some of these different groups who are involved in medical aid. And one example you use is a great portrayal of organizational meetings. And I think anyone who's been in an organizational meeting will resonate with this to some extent, but this is a particular context. And, you know, these meetings give an example of some barriers to coordination so would you just describe how one of those meetings might go and then what obstacles it throws up when it comes to trying to coordinate
0: sure um yeah and coordination was an issue i didn't think i was going to look at it before i started my research it's really something that came up on the ground where everybody was complaining about a lack of coordination And there's a lot of disagreement on how uh, aid in Haiti should be done, which priorities, which target populations, which strategies are best, but everybody agreed that coordination was a problem. Haitians, foreigners, professionals, patients, um, everybody said that if there were more coordination, uh, things would go better, patients would be getting better care and there would be less waste. The issue was who should be responsible for this coordination, and as I mentioned, earlier, the Haitian government has a ministry of planning and external cooperation. So that's um, kind of working with international funders, but uh, like many other ministries in the government, like the Ministry of Health, um, they are understaffed, uh, they have limited resources, and a lot of their activities are taking place in the capital in Port-au-Prince. I was working in Cap-Haïtien, which is uh, the second city, the country's second city on the north coast, and um, they had a very limited presence uh, in that area. So in the case I describe, it was uh, an American physician who sort of took it upon himself to say, I'm going to make a network of people working, um, foreigners working in this area, giving health care. So this was... Um, an American physician who was in Haiti regularly and uh, got in touch with people uh, on the internet. And it was people that he ran into in the street, sometimes in the hospitals where he was working, sometimes at the airport, which is a, where a lot of people would end up um, connecting, realizing that they were you know, volunteering or doing medical aid in the area. So he uh, set up these coordination meetings um, at a, a local hotel. But what happened in these meetings and what's also happened, I saw in meetings after the earthquake. First of all, um, a lot of the meetings were run in English uh, and you have a lot of folks in Haiti, of course, who do speak English and it's taught in schools. And a lot of Haitian professionals especially are quite fluent in English and have spent time overseas, but not all of them are. Um, We know that um, the majority of folks in Haiti uh, speak Creole as their first and only language, and then um, uh, French is learned mostly in schools uh, and then uh, kind of perfected over time. But by having the meeting uh, in English, it's sort of setting the tone in terms of who's running the meeting, um, who's setting the agenda, and who are we really facilitating things for in terms of communication. Also during these meetings, each group would kind of go around and introduce themselves and say what they were doing. But it became clear to me that they were sort of introducing themselves to the other foreigners. So, for example, they would say things like, whenever you're in Haiti, you know, come and see us and we will show you around. And while they were saying that, there were a lot of Haitian people who were in the room. But the message was when you are in Haiti, again, assuming that their listeners sort of or the people that they were uh, addressing were foreigners and uh, coming through another challenge finally with coordinating these activities is a lot of these folks like um, the the American doctor who had, created this network. They were in Haiti for short trips. They would come down for five to ten days. Um, he came down pretty regularly, as I recall, uh, You know, maybe every three months or so. Some folks are just down there once a year. And I remember seeing people at that meeting who were there. It was their first trip to Haiti. They were coming in um, uh, for the first time, staying a week, and then they're you know sitting at the table at this meeting to coordinate healthcare, an environment that they've just landed in. Meanwhile, folks from um, the local ministry offices or from, you know, Haitian professionals from hospitals were not invited or were not present or were, were not involved. So it brings up the co- the question, who gets to coordinate, who is invited, who's around the table, and who are these meetings actually designed for?
1: Well, in a similar vein, um, and, you, and you sort of touched on this issue of material goods coming in and yeah. Anyway, material goods coming in before. So one of the unintended consequences of external goodwill towards Haiti is so-called dumping. And this is when foreign companies or governments or individuals even take it upon themselves to send shipments of stuff that's meant to be useful to the Haitians. But what is it about these donations that makes them problematic for Haitians?
0: Yeah, again, given that um, a lot of the groups uh, and folks who are involved in providing an aid in Haiti uh, spend most of their time outside of Haiti, oftentimes um, they're not necessarily aware of needs on a day-to-day basis or what actually helps. Um, so first of all, Haiti is often presented as a place of just unlimited need. Uh, so if you look in the media, there's a lot of talk about poverty in Haiti, about extreme poverty, about what people don't have, about lack, about um Necessity, And it's not to say that there are not a lot of people in Haiti who don't need, you know, kind of, and, and don't have access to basic resources. But the problem is, when you don't look at what resources are available locally, um, then you can make some pretty mistaken decisions about what folks do need or what should be sent. Um so, for example, a lot of uh, groups uh, will do kind of collections either in a local church or a local school in the U.S. or in Canada or in Europe, uh, and so they will bring down things that are discarded, um, and uh, sometimes the things can be useful, um, you know, secondhand clothes or um, books. Uh, but then sometimes if those clothes are torn or dirty, or if those books uh, aren't in a language that folks in Haiti can read, well. Um, it's not very useful, and, and people on the ground will resent you know, receiving things that are broken or that are not um, going to really meet a specific need. There's another dynamic that I noticed um, that around dumping and also around coordination is um, the folks that I saw in Haitian hospitals generally will not say no to an offer of aid. So if people offer and say, well, could we send you these medical supplies or we have a group that is looking to come down and, and, and provide medical services, uh, people would gen- generally say yes. And they do so for different reasons. Um, and I use the example of a, a donation of an ambulance a city in Florida that uh, was offering to donate an ambulance to the hospital where I was working. The hospital where I was at did not have an ambulance service, but they already had a couple of ambulances that were broken down. Ambulance services in Haiti are very complicated, um, and also kind of maintaining the vehicles over the long term gets tricky. So for different reasons, there were a couple of ambulances already at the hospital. A city in Florida says, we will send you an ambulance if you're interested, um, and um, you can use it to transport patients. The hospital administration said yes, even though they didn't want it. And they did that for a couple of different reasons. Number one, they were hopeful that there might be parts that could be used for their Ambulances which weren't working, um, or for other hospital vehicles, uh, not necessarily ambulances. But uh, folks in Haiti are extremely resourceful um, at reusing, recycling, um, and making the best with a uh, kind of w- with what they have. So um, the the ambulance that was coming from Florida actually was not in great order, but maybe had some parts that could be useful. Um, another thing is that they were well aware that if they said no, then another hospital would say yes. The ambulance would get sent down to Haiti, it would clear customs, it would go through all of these processes, make it to the other hospital. The first hospital, what they needed was an x-ray machine. But they also knew that if those same donors eventually had an x-ray machine available, they would send it to the folks who had said yes, because those channels were already open. So people are not likely to refuse things, even if they don't want them, because they know if they say no, they lose potential offers in the future. If people are going to be sending things down, then again, those channels are open. And the next time something actually useful is going to be sent down, they want to have that contact. They want to have that experience. They want to have taken the picture said, saying, yes, we received your gift and we're using it. And thank you. Um, So this becomes another complication, another complicated element, around dumping is it takes a really long time, um, for people to say no. And one of the groups that I did study um, they said it took about ten years of working in Haiti before folks would refuse their different offers, because at that point there was enough trust build up that if we say no, you won't just go work in another community, or you won't just go work in another country, or or abandon us because we refused. You know this whole expression around you don't bite the hand that feeds you. Well, in that case, it was like you don't say no to the hand that feeds you unless you're um, confident that they will not abandon you, that they'll stick around.
1: Wow. And that story really gets at that um, kind of strange dynamic between the Haitian health professionals and uh, the people who are coming in, the foreigners, that they've got different motivations and different ideas of, you know, perceptions of what their motivations are that um, sometimes just don't jibe at all.
0: Absolutely. And that was one thing that I was really interested in, was asking folks, you know, why... Is this aid happening between these people? Why are these people coming to Haiti? Why do you think they're coming to Haiti? Uh, And then I would interview foreigners and say, why do you think, what do you think the doctors and nurses you work with in Haiti would say about? why foreigners are helping them. And so how people are looking at each other's motivations. And I also use the category of interests because it's one that's used also in in Creole and in French, les intérêts, or intérêts, like what are people's interests in um, doing this kind of work? And it was very interesting to see how um, people from the outside Tended to talk about motivations or interest in, in relatively simple terms like, oh, you know, it's 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 the right thing to do or it's, um, you know, I've been lucky, so I want to help other people. Um one woman I remembered, she talked about it in terms of brain chemistry, like, so this makes me feel good. And so I do this. And, you know, at the end of the day, is it any different than committing mass murder? I mean, I remember her really saying that, you know, like, (laughs) wow, you know, it's in in the brain, it's brain chemistry. And, and, you know, I think it was also a way for her to deflect compliments, like, oh, you know, she didn't want people to say, oh, you're such a good person, or you're such a, you know, you're so great for doing this, you know, by turning it into something neurological, she was like, yeah, it's like, you know, my, my brain brain gets like a a little high or a little buzz from doing this so that's why i do it you know um whereas when i asked uh folks in haiti they were much more cautious in talking about motivations and interest and they were much more nuanced in making different typologies and saying um we think people actually have a lot of different reasons for doing this um and it was it was surprising when i um kind of brought these conversations into dialogue how um, folks from the outside were not necessarily clued into how they were perceived um, from folks on the ground. No.
1: Well, maybe some of them will read this book and find out more about it. Um, so one organization that you did become close to was Santé and you describe them in Chapter 2. And it seems like they have a different approach than a lot of humanitarian missions. So I wonder, could you tell us more about that difference. What is Colm Sante doing that other NGOs don't, or what are they not doing that the other ones do? And then what is the effect of that?
0: Yeah, this is a small organization um, based in Portland, Maine, and they became active in Northern Haiti in the early 2000s. And there were a couple of things about this group uh, that caught my interest from the beginning. Number one, they were not a religious group, and uh, they actually had a lot of members who said they weren't comfortable with religious models, missionary or church uh, models, um, towards providing providing aid. Um, some folks worked with both and were okay with it, but it was a group that definitely had a secular identity. Another interesting thing was that no one in the group uh, in its early history really had a connection to Haiti, so it was uh, very different from um, you know Haitian Americans or Haitian Canadians um, who will go back to their hometowns or reconnect with uh, extended family or, or former colleagues and do uh, medical aid, also out of a sense of a national belonging or patriotism. Uh, these folks had no prior connections uh, to Haiti. They had also been involved in different forms of medical missions before, like vitamin distributions or vaccination campaigns, some in the Dominican Republic, some in Africa, and more kind of traditional models of go in for a week, provide care, and then come home and do that you know, once a year or more often. And they'd gotten frustrated with uh, that model. Um, and they realized that it's not it wasn't leading to the type of solutions that they were looking for. And then the third thing I think that was interesting is a lot of these folks in sante were involved in um, public health, either as professionals or just personal initiatives um, through their own practice. There was a mix of public health workers, nurses, physicians in Maine, and they, um, more than a lot of other groups, had a Grasp of the complexity of health systems—that it wasn't just about clinical treatments and getting, you know, the right product into the right body. There was more um, reflection about creating a system that would be able to main care. Um, over the long term and as part of institutions. So their, their way of working Combite actually is they the American volunteers uh, and employees do not provide health services when they are in Haiti, they do not see patients, they do not treat people their mission is really to support the existing system that's there and they're working with a couple of different establishments in northern Haiti with a focus on the public system so working in government hospitals and clinics and really letting Haitian colleagues take the lead saying um, here is you know what we need in terms of outside resources or training or support for infrastructure They've done a lot of work uh, around wa- water quality, around electricity, um, some trainings as well, uh, and a lot of uh, almost more like administrative uh, interventions around paperwork, um, around, uh, uh, so for example, the, the, one of the hospitals they work in has a depot where they have uh, all the materials, Will a system to keep track of what's coming in, what's going out, what's going to expire soon. Um, so more of the kind of systematic, bureaucratic um, and administrative aspects of healthcare, care and um, not the kind of hands-on working with patients, those images that we, when we think about humanitarian medicine, you know, we have these images in our mind of foreign uh, doctors uh, treating uh, patients in countries like Haiti.
1: Um,
0: and that's not really how they work.
1: And do you think that approach is more effective than, say, focusing on the clinical work?
0: I, I think it depends how you uh, define efficacy. And I remember, you know, that kompit definitely <clears throat> comes in with a lot of reflection and a lot of critique of other models that they see. Um, and I, I definitely understand those critiques. And I also, you know, happen to believe that, you know, working with systems, working with you know people who are already there and professionals it's so important and it's something that not a lot of groups do um but i also remember seeing for example orthopedic teams that would come through and they would just like operate you know you know, for a week, and uh, just, you know, see a limited number of patients, but do these interventions that were pretty dramatic and spectacular. And, um, you know, a kid who would be able to walk again, uh, for example, and it was hard for me to say, you know, to let's say that kids family well that wasn't a good intervention because it's not sustainable and because it doesn't focus on you know and and when when i saw for that family it's like our our child will be able to grow up and have a normal life um and so i think that's another reason why you know so many of these groups that will do kind of short-term dramatic interventions why they're so popular um is that there are plenty of folks who want it and when those groups have done their week's work um you know, they're going to get so many thank yous and they'll get like a goodbye party and they'll get these testimonials where people say, you know, my child can walk or for the first time, I don't have this pain or, you know, I can see again. I mean, these really amazing things. Um, and I, I don't want to discount or discredit any of that uh, because I have access to healthcare. care. Um, but when they leave, when that group leaves, what happens? You know, what What goes on when they're not there, what image um, is left, you know, of the foreigners who come in with all the resources and who are able to give the care, and the the local staff and physicians who have to continue working in really difficult conditions. I mean, I remember just, it was a heartbreaking moment. I was with a Haitian pediatrician in a hospital, and she um, went out into the waiting room to call her patients, in, and there was a group of foreigners that was visiting at the time, but she was calling out people's names, you know saying, oh, you know, okay, this patient and that patient is, wait, are they not here? Um, And, you know, everybody was silent. And um, she said, well, where is everybody? Because the waiting waiting room was full. And she said, where are these people? You have appointments. And um, someone yelled from the back of the room, we're waiting for the foreigners. And, you know, this was to a Haitian pediatrician who had Studied in Haiti, decided to stay in her country. Um, knew the local pathology super super well. Could communicate with patients and their families in their language. And you know, I remember when she you know told me that story. Just how how painful it was for her um, that that her professional experience and talent and commitment were being. Um, disregarded, or in some ways, almost undermined uh, by people who would come in for a week and do, um, you know, procedures that were more visible, uh, and who they themselves were more visible, because they were foreign. Um, but at the end of the week, you know, they were going to go back home, and she was going to be, you know, providing care to to people in her country.
1: Yeah, gosh, that's awful. Um, <laughs> so, and it, it makes me think, too, that for the The volunteers who come in and are doing that sort of miraculous medical cures, I mean, no, they're not really miraculous, but they probably seem that way. I guess maybe the people, if those are the people who are seeking an endorphin hit, if there's more, you know, like that woman who spoke to you about the brain chemistry, um, I suppose it's more of that type of reward.
0: Absolutely. And and one of the things that I describe is how different people in the aid process talk about real medicine. So I would have people from Canada and the US talk about their medical practice saying, you know, oh, I'm mostly seeing the worried well, and I have to do all of these paperwork and my patients aren't that really sick. And I work in, you know, in a pretty wealthy co- community in British Columbia or in, you know, in 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 Texas. And, you know, when I come to Haiti, this is when I see real medicine. This is when I see the difference in what I'm doing. This is when I see, you know, um, kind of pathologies that have not been treated for a long time and that my being there and my helping really makes a difference this is a real this is real medicine um, and the phrase real medicine was also used by haitian um, medical professionals especially haitian medical residents um, these you know trainees in pediatrics or an OBGYN and surgery i spent a lot of time with them and they talked about real medicine they said you know when when we go abroad for rotations or training or when we go visit our family like they have you know, we can do all kinds of laboratory tests. They've got these complex procedures. They have, a, you know, neurosurgery, which we can't do here. That's real medicine. We want to do that. Their real medicine was, you know, the idea of benefiting from the advances in biomedicine, the technologies that are available, just the stability and in infrastructure. You know, these were folks who sometimes had to operate by the light of their cell phones, who didn't have access to to water in their hospital. They said, you know, when we went to the the, the hospital in the, in the Other country, we saw what people are able to do when, you know, we can rely on electricity, when patients can do preventative care, get to the hospital before they're too sick, when we can confirm our our diagnoses. You know, Haitian physicians are amazing at diagnosis because they know the questions to ask and they have a strong sense of observation. And this was something that they got a lot of compliments for from their foreign uh, colleagues. It's like, oh, you guys are so good at diagnosing. But then they said, yeah, but we don't have the confirmation. We do a diagnosis, we start a treatment, sometimes we don't see our patient again, and we don't necessarily have the lab facilities to confirm what we suspected, you know, was going on in this case. So there was a frustration around that too.
1: Mm. So they almost had diametrically opposed ideas of what real medicine Absolutely. Prizes.
0: And that's not to say that Haitian clinicians, you know, don't get a lot of rewards from, you know, treating people who need care or that they're not committed to, you know, primary health care and the basics. I remember a good friend and colleague, you know, who had decided not to leave Haiti um, said, you know, she's like people are so my patients are so grateful. And I, you know, give them the message. She was a a gynecologist. She said, I tell them, you know, you can be in good health. You deserve to be in good health. You have the right to be in good health. And she said, they are so grateful to hear that message and that I treat them as people and I, you know, care about whether or not they get better. She said, the heartbreaking thing is the economic situation, the political situation means that they won't necessarily be in good health and they won't have access to, you know, the basic things that they need to be healthy. But she said, I'm always telling them um, that they they shouldn't be sick and they don't have to be sick.
1: Wow, well, let's look at, um, I want to look at some of the, uh, the residents and what their lives are like. And in chapter three, you delve into a complex and interesting dynamic between the Haitian healthcare professionals and the NGOs. And you write about this group of residents at one of the hospitals, the Justinian. So just to give a sense of the residents' perspective, could you talk a bit more about the residents' backgrounds, what their living conditions are like, and their expectations for their own careers and livelihoods?
0: Yes, I became interested in the medical residents. <sighs> at the Justinier where I did most of my field work because um, they were really there full time. So you have a situation in Haiti where a lot of the attending physicians as they're known, or the médecins de service, um, the kind of the staff physicians actually don't spend that much time at the hospital. Um, It's a public institution and they receive a a check from the government, but uh, they don't necessarily show up for work. Uh, Most of them have private clinics outside of the hospital and it's much more lucrative for them to see uh, their, their patients in private practice. And some of them will come in to um, the public hospital to Justinier, but um, the, the rates of absenteeism are very high, whereas the medical residents are not allowed to practice anywhere else. Um, they have to be at the hospital uh, full time. And it's only once they're completed their residency that they are allowed to open uh, a private practice. So when I was there, there were 54 um, residents in about a dozen different specialties like pediatrics, OBGYN, surgery, orthopedics, um, internal medicine, family medicine. And uh, they were about my age at the time, late 20s, early 30s. And because I saw them every day, I got to know them pretty well. And um, I interviewed 52 of the medical residents out of 54 um, and talked with them about all sorts of things, about uh, their reasons for going into medicine, their family background, their work at the hospital, um, their experiences with international aid, and their projects uh, for their professional futures. And one of the things that struck me is when I asked them about kind of their family backgrounds and and um, how they grew up, is most of them, um, almost none of them actually came from uh, families where there had been doctors and nurses in the past. And in Haiti, historically, medicine was often um, a kind of a family profession where the father was a doctor, the grandfather, etc again, mostly men in practice, um, in in medical practice, whereas uh, today's medical residents are about 50% men, 50% women. And when I asked them what their parents did for work, uh, they mentioned school teachers, um, government bureaucrats, but low-level, some farmers even. A lot of their mothers had been market women. So they were not coming from elite families. Um, And elite families in Haiti today generally don't send their Uh, kids to school in Haiti after high school. They send them um, starting from undergraduate uh, to school in the U.S. or in other countries. So these medical residents had done their high schools in um, Haiti. Uh, They did their undergraduate medical degree in Haiti, and then were doing a medical residency in Haiti. And they came from families with pretty modest backgrounds, like I said. Um, So their own financial pressures were pretty high. Um, and the reason that they had been able to get into... Um med school number one, they were very smart, worked very hard, but they had also been able to, their families had been able to pay for um, good schools in high school, generally, Catholic high schools, even Protestant students um, would be attending Catholic high schools, and they all uh, had a first degree relative who was overseas, so a brother, a parent, um, a sibling, um, someone close in their family who lived in Miami in Brooklyn in Montreal. And was supporting the family. And that's what uh, enabled them to attend these Catholic schools, which can be pretty expensive. Um, At the time, the school um, near that hospital in Haiti was about a thousand U.S. dollars a month, which is, I'm sorry, a year, uh, which is a significant uh, amount for for a lot of families in Haiti. A thousand U.S. a year would be a lot. So they had made it through that system with good grades and uh, gotten into medical school and then eventually into residencies. And the majority of them, the vast majority of them, when I asked them about their futures, said that they intended to leave Haiti to go um, abroad. And uh, the countries that they named were the same countries that are sending aid. So the U.S., uh, Canada, France, those were places that they hoped uh, to go after their residency Um and uh, it was a, a dilemma for them because they talked about loving their country, about seeing that their country needed uh, physicians and needed specialists, but um, saying, you know, my cousin has already immigrated to Florida. She's a resident there, a medical resident. She's making $80,000, 90000 a year. She said, if I made that much, I could send that back to help my parents, you know, kind of have a decent house. I could put both, you know, my little siblings to school. And if somebody gets sick and needs surgery, she said, they would say, you know, I can do more good for my country if I leave it than if I stay. And the title of the book, Where They Need Me, uh, is actually a resident talking about his frustrations of working in Haiti and saying he wanted to go abroad because he felt like um, Haiti was not making use of his talent, his skills, um, and that he would go somewhere where they needed him. So that need um, was also a way of talking about where would he actually be able to work and um, support his family.
1: Oh, very neat that that's the title of the book, because I remember reading that, and somehow I didn't make the connection, but that's a great, um, you know, sort of nuance to the title.
0: Yeah, and it flips the script, you know, in that a lot of people will think of Haiti as a place of need, and they might assume that I'm talking about, oh, you know, Haiti a place where foreign physicians are needed, uh, and this was more somebody saying, like, I'm a Haitian physician in my country, and I feel like I'm not able to contribute it to to it with my, with my skills and my talent and my motivation.
1: So on the topic of brain drain, um, a key theme of the book, if I understood it right, seems to be that... There's two phenomena um, that are inextricably linked, and that's international medical aid and immigration of Haitian health professionals. Or that is the theme that those two things are actually linked and not two discrete phenomena. Um, and so I'm wondering if, and if so, how this dynamic between the residents and the foreign NGOs illustrates or informs that theme.
0: It's. Yeah. um, Not only is the aid coming um, in great part from countries where uh, these Haitian professionals hope to go themselves or where they already have family there, um, there's also a pressure by the part of the foreign groups for these clinicians to stay in Haiti because they want... They want the Haitian nurses and physicians to stay, um, to continue working with their projects, um, and to contribute to the health force in the country. So there's this pressure, sometimes it's implicit or sometimes it's explicit, but to saying, well, you guys shouldn't migrate because if you do, who is going to treat the patients, who is going to, um, who is going to provide health services if, if you all leave, um, And then on another level, it's interesting because some of the groups um, and and some of the training programs will give uh, scholarships if uh, Haitian physicians will sign contracts saying, I'll go back to my community uh, for a number of years or I won't leave, I'll give care. Um, Yes, I'll go get this training. So for example, the Cuban government offered that scholarships um, to go to med school in Cuba for uh, uh, Haitian students, but they had to sign um, agreements with the Haitian government and the Cuban government saying that they would return to their communities to provide care. Um, And then for other individuals, working for an NGO can be a stepping stone to departure. It's if they work for an American group, they can work on their English, uh, they can make different contacts, they can um, accumulate uh, more capital and get a salary to pay the expenses that come with migration. Uh, So yeah, these same groups that are trying to keep people in Haiti sometimes end up offering uh, different opportunities for folks to leave.
1: Hmm. Well, let's switch to a sort of different topic, which is sainthood. And Paul Farmer is a name that a lot of people listening will probably recognize. He was a renowned, beloved, much admired figure in global health, and especially for the work that he did in Haiti. And so in Chapter 5, you use his story to examine the role of the so-called saint in global health. And you know you write about this, but could you say what problems do you see when people embrace this idea of sainthood?
0: Yes. Um, so Dr. Farmer was, you know, as you said, a really extraordinary individual, and I think one of the things that he'll be remembered for um, really is his idea that um, economic uh, constraints should not be a barrier um, for people to access the healthcare that they deserve, that everybody that they deserve, um, that all lives um, have equal worth, and um, that failure to not get everybody healthcare in a world that has so much wealth Uh, And so many resources is really a a lack of imagination, as he called it. Uh, And so he was a really inspirational figure for so many people. Um, He really inspired me in terms of his knowledge um, of Haiti, his commitment uh, to health services there and uh, what he was able to accomplish in terms of building, um, you know, Health systems to treat people um, in in an area where a lot of people had just given up or said it wasn't possible. I mean, we can't forget that Dr. Farmer was among the first people to say HIV drugs must be made available, can and must be made available um, in in places where people are extremely poor at a time when that was unthinkable because uh, the medications were so expensive. You know, after they were developed in the in the mid '90s, um, so very early on, him saying everybody should. Have access to these medications, and this is what is you know the right thing to do. So um, farmers definitely um you know somebody who has had a a huge impact, not just in Haiti, but around the world. Um, Yeah. And I I started seeing during my research that different sort of archetypes or different uh, figures would emerge in uh, medical aid. And one of them was this figure of the saint. And I found uh, it very interesting why certain individuals are described as saintly figures, Dr. Farmer being one of them, but um, many other people. And one of the things that I started to realize is that the the saintly figures uh, in in medical aid in Haiti and probably elsewhere, they um, were never Haitian. It was always people who had come to Haiti from other countries. Um, And the idea was that if you... Were Haitian, and um, you were, let's say, coming back to Haiti, or you were in Port-au-Prince, but did care in rural areas. Um, you were doing so out of patriotism, or a sort of national self-interest, or you were helping your group, or it was an obligation. It was something that you had to do. And this figure of of the saint is sort of like the person who's dropped out of nowhere, or comes from a place where there's no. <clears throat> let's say, sense of national belonging or patriotism for Haiti. Uh, and so in that case, the saintly figures in medical aid tended to be white Americans or white Canadians or Europeans. Um, and this is a long-standing figure, especially for medical aid. I also talk about Dr. Albert Schweitzer, uh, who was an Alsatian physician who worked in West Africa and got depicted a lot of times the same ways. And, and, and the, you know, the representations of these figures – oftentimes like to show the difference between them and their patients. And you saw this a lot in images after the earthquake of... Um, You know, like a a tall white woman standing over um, uh, an elderly Haitian man who was on his gurney, or um, I I call it sometimes the fire fire and the kitten image, where there's a big contrast between who's helping and who's being helped. Uh, And so an image of a young Haitian nurse helping a young Haitian woman, that image is not going to circulate kind of in, in media or in our imagination. It's these images where you have these contrasts of difference um and so these saintly figures again they had to be from elsewhere and the idea is that their aid could sort of be arbitrary uh in that they didn't have to do it they, It was not part of a um kind of their obligation or patriotic ties or a sense of belonging um it was there was something almost random about their commitment um whereas Haitian um you know healthcare workers could Get portrayed um, sometimes as villains, especially if they were connected to the Haitian elite. And that's another character I talk about is that um, Haitian. Uh, there are you know wealthy families in Haiti. Um, And they're often described in pretty similar terms as being lighter skinned, as being based in Port-au-Prince, and as being kind of oppressors to the majority of Haitian people. Um, And it's a tricky conversation to have because powerful families in Haiti have um, definitely not always acted in the interest of the population. They've supported dictatorships. They've had exploitative labor practices. They've supported uh, violent violent military coups. Um, And so I do not want to defend, of course, any of those actions. But one of the things that I saw in these archetypal figures was that being wealthy in a poor country will get you condemnation from people in wealthy countries. So families in Haiti, for example, that would have You know, people working in their homes have a swimming pool um, and have a nice property. Even if that home or that swimming pool or uh, the domestic labor was similar to a family in the United States or in Switzerland or in Canada, uh, they would be particularly condemned for it. It's like, how can you be wealthy? When you're surrounded by such poverty, and that didn't make so much sense to me because I, you know, grew up in the U.S. and in Canada, which are enormously wealthy countries right next to poor countries and with poor citizens in them. But there's something about that proximity that makes, um, you know, the elite in Haiti, um, and again, how you want to define elite can vary, economic elite, uh, education elite. And what I saw was these descriptions of Haitian doctors historically as being kind of parasitic and abusive and violent and being completely disconnected from their patients. And there are cases definitely where that was the case and is still the case. But like I said earlier, what I saw a lot was um, doctors whose mothers were market women um, and whose fathers were construction workers. And so this idea of them being a villain because they had gone to medical school, and maybe because they had a vehicle, or because their kids, um, you know, were in a private school, that this immediately made them sort of suspicious of, are they corrupt? You know, are they, are they stealing? Are they part of the problem? Whereas the people a lot of times making these judgments, they themselves were like flying in and out of the country and living in wealthy communities back home. Um, And how this judgment takes place, again, of elites in poor countries, I find kind of interesting. So they could either be or they could be this other category that I call champions. And you see this a lot in global health literature. Um, say, find local champions. That means people on the ground who are, you know, kind of cooperating, working, that you can employ, sometimes who will make things easier for the global health initiatives from abroad as translators or drivers, logistics, tra- um Go between people who do the administrative work, Uh, and when I said before, Haitians cannot become saints uh, in these figures, but they definitely can be local champions. And these are the folks that the the uh, foreigners don't want to have them emigrate. Um, How can we work with them, support them? And you know, I don't think it's you know, I think there are some positive things around category of champions, I think, like supporting local professionals and recognizing talent that's coming from the communities where interventions taking place, uh, is terrific. But those champions have to walk a fine line. I remember one of them asking me, and the photographs in the book, she said, "Take a picture of me as she was distributing um, these different kits for midwives of, uh, you know, sterile gloves and a razor blade for cutting the umbilical cord." And I said, "Why do you want your picture?" She said, "So I can show the foreigners that I didn't steal the material." <laughs> So they're aware that they're under scrutiny, you know, they're the champions, but at the same time, uh, given that they're entrusted with resources, they may at any minute be accused of, um, pilfering or of, um, corruption.
1: Well, that's just a really helpful way that of, of sort of framing, um, or, or looking at the way that, um. I guess the, the perceptions that people have of the different characters who are working. And, you know, I, I hadn't really thought of that way before, saints, villains, and champions, but... Yeah, um, and again,
0: these are archetypes and that, you know, of course... Yes, exactly. ...people are going to be yes. more complex than those archetypes. Yes. Um, and that's what makes it complicated, you know, and a lot of times, um, you know, that... Uh, so, for example, I'm always, you know, try to be careful about how I talk about Dr. Farmer's work because actually a lot of my... Uh, anthropologist colleagues um they were encouraging me i think you know for a number of different reasons to be very critical of his work of of him as a person um and for all different reasons you know i think there was some jealousy involved at how prominent it had become um i think uh some people were very uncomfortable and this with reason of, of kind of white saviorism um but you know the way that i address it is not to talk about uh him or his work but more how he's portrayed and again this kind of figure uh, that he gets cast into and i think in you know know he would have disliked it or he probably did dislike it because the problem is too when we create these saintly figures it's a way of saying oh well they're able to do this or like that person has the talent or the will or the capacity to do these amazing things and in some ways it's a sort of moral outsourcing if the saints are there to do it then what do ordinary people have to do right and when we focus on these charismatic individuals and these saintly heroic figures, we're paying less attention to systems. We're paying less attention to communities, to collective act, to collective actions, and different ways of bringing about social change that don't uh, depend on a single charismatic leader. And, um, you know, this was not the only case of it. Of course, a lot of the groups that I worked with were based around these single charismatic leaders. And when these folks retire, pass away, um, are unable to keep doing their work, a lot of the groups undergo a lot of um, instability, because so much was invested uh, in this one kind of superhuman figure who was doing so much of the work. And so I'm, I'm you know, kind of keeping an eye out for different organizations that understand that for long term effect, and for, for kind of a more engaged uh, way of bringing about social change, um, we have to look for different models and not just base it around these saintly figures, even though, of course, we also, you know, need inspiration and in people we admire. I think sometimes it's just interesting to look for it in places where we don't expect to see it. Um, and that for me was really Haitian health professionals who are less visible, but doing incredible work, oftentimes very quietly with little fanfare and little visibility.
1: Yeah. So I don't want to let you get away without asking about the earthquake, because, you um... The 2010 earthquake was just obviously a major event in Haiti, and it was a major event in your book as well. So um, I'm just wondering how the international response and its aftermath informed your research or even vice versa.
0: Yeah, so I um, did a lot of the research for this book from 2007 to 2009 and finished um, my doctoral field work right before about seven months before the earthquake in Haiti. And uh, it was such an enormous and devastating event. It's sort of impossible to describe um, how many how many lives were lost over 200,000, you know, estimates and, uh, you know, number of homes and schools uh, destroyed. And, and, you know, when you think about everything that people had invested in their communities and their projects and to have all of that kind of be reduced to rubble in seconds, it's, it's really quite awful. Um, the community where I worked was not directly hit by the earthquake. There were no, you know, there was no damage to the buildings uh, in northern Haiti although they are at risk, uh, unfortunately, for future quakes. uh, And Capellicien, that city, was uh, destroyed by a quake in 1842. It's possible that uh, more quakes are coming. Um, But uh, one of the things that we saw with aid was a huge amplification in the number of groups, uh, in the resources that were going to be available, uh, and the number of people who were traveling to Haiti. And in some ways, it was a game changer because there were uh, folks who had never been involved before. There was new technologies as well. Uh, So, for example, I would say that uh, online mapping of Haiti really increased after the earthquake because areas before where you just couldn't see what was where got mapped in a lot of detail um, and is now available online. Uh, Different ways of texting donations. The Haitian earthquake was one of the first massive uh, responses where people could text a donation, where you now it's considered uh, just you know something uh, <clears throat> relatively easy to do. But one of the things that I saw after the quake was that the tendencies that I had seen before it just continued to exist so if there were coordination problems before those same problems existed just with more players if medical residents had been thinking about leaving before the quake after it just became more urgent do we go or do we not um the question of you know portrayals of saints and villains again um so the tendencies that i described are still present uh were present after the earthquake and are still present today 12 years later and one of the things that I also try to work against uh, is a lot of times Haiti appears in people's minds or consciousness and, and in the news uh, during times of crisis. And the language of crisis is used uh, a lot to describe Haiti, whether it's political, um, climate crisis, environmental. And it's true that these shocks are happening and that there are political events like the assassination of the president last year or um, um, you know gang activities. Um, but. I think it's also important to never lose sight of history, um, whether it's short, medium, or long term in Haiti, that uh, Haiti is not a place that is unlucky. Um, this is not random what's happening or what happened, for example, after the quake or why there's still so many cases of preventable disease in Haiti. This is part of long term political and economic processes. This is uh, part of the history of colonization that is still present today uh, in post colonialism. It's uh, of American and Canadian influence uh in the americas there's so many uh causes to what's happening uh, in haiti today and they can't be explained um, just in terms of this hurricane or that earthquake or that epidemic uh, it's really about um, historical patterns and and um, again this is one of the things that that I think I hope I was able to show uh, in my book is that these these are not new problems and they are also not going to disappear and that they're not unique to Haiti and that was one of the things that was important for me as well was to not write about Haiti as an exceptional place and when I share this work with colleagues in other parts of the world where they're you know fighting similar struggles around re- limited resources or uh, weak health systems or uh, the complications around aid is they recognize these patterns and tendencies that i saw in haiti they see them in other countries and that's something i keep telling colleagues in haiti as i said you know this is not a haiti specific set of challenges of course there's particularities, and there's things that are specific to the Haitian case. But working across inequalities more broadly is something that we're seeing around the world. Um, And so as much as this book is a case study of medical aid in Haiti, I also want it to be um, something that people can use to understand global health on a broader scale.
1: Yeah, it's such an insightful book. Uh, I learned a lot from reading it. And I, I hope people who are People who work in global health, people who are interested in global health, but also anybody who's considered sending a text donation, for instance, to Haiti or somewhere else, um, could gain a lot from reading the book. But I don't want to let you get away without asking you, Pierre, what are you working on next?
0: I'm starting a completely different research project, Um, and and one in many ways that was inspired uh, by some work I did in Haiti around family planning and uh, maternal child health, but um, I'm going to be doing a project that's much closer to home, um, about voluntary childlessness in Quebec, especially looking at the experiences of French-Canadian men. Um, and Quebec had one of the world's highest fertility rates uh, in the early 1900s, and it's dropped dramatically. And we have a, a growing number of young people here who talk about not wanting to have children, and some of them who are even turning to surgical procedures, uh, voluntary sterilizations, uh, in order to not reproduce biologically. And And I think what I'm most interested in is how people imagine their futures. And that's something that I paid a lot of attention to in Haiti was how people imagined uh, their future in in what's kind of an inhospitable environment at times where there's a lot of challenges around resources. Here in Quebec, you know, we have access to fresh water, we have access to a lot of land, but there's still a lot of concern about what the next 20, 50 years are going to look like. And, um, you know, uh, one of the things that I I learned from people in Haiti is that pessimism is a luxury in that people who are having the hardest time stay optimistic about the future and they can do so in different terms. Sometimes it's in religious terms or uh, spiritual terms or such, but different ways of imagining that they'll get out of a tough situation. And so I'm interested in talking with folks here about how they imagine um, their own future, their family's future, their collective future, uh, and what um, place. Uh, childlessness or being child-free, as some of them call it, can have in, in those futures.
1: Wow. That, that makes me think. I read an obituary once of a Chinese man who lived to be 107, and he had lived through some really tumultuous times in China. And of course, when someone's old, they always get asked, what's your secret to longevity? And his reply was, um, I'm an optimist. I find that the pessimists tend to die. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't know if that was really what worked for him, but it was kind of a telling statement, but that sounds like a really fascinating subject. And is that going to end up as a book
0: or? I hope so. Yes. And it'll be interesting because, uh, um, you know, it's the Quebec has not been um, the subject of a lot of anthropological studies, a lot of sociologists. Um, but uh, I identify sort of as half Quebecois on my mom's side, um, but I didn't grow up here, so I have sort of an insider outsider um, position in describing Quebec society. And I'm I'm looking forward, you know, to uh, kind of embarking on on this next set of questions, which again, I think a a local, a very local, um, project with folks here, but one that is going to have increasing relevance, I think as people decide, make decisions around fertility and reproduction based on how they imagine our our collective future.
1: Yeah. You seem to be very good at cultivating that insider outsider kind of position. I try. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, um, Once again, everyone, the book is called Where They Need Me, Local Clinicians and the Workings of Global Health in Haiti by Pierre Min. And Pierre, thank you so much for this talk today.
0: Thank you. I really appreciate it.